Good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. Great to see you all. We'll be in Luke chapter 22, if you want to turn there. What a blessing it is to fellowship and to praise the Lord together. And looking forward to today's message. And it's a great season, isn't it? Uh, Nearing Christmas and thinking about what God has done in sending Jesus to be our Savior and all that He means to us. And in the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. How awesome is our God who looked at our lowest state and was mindful of us and has given us a chance to know Him and to celebrate Him forever. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for sending your Son to be our Savior, and we're so grateful of all the ways that you reveal yourself to us, how you, you show us the reality of your existence and your power and your love and your care and the way you speak to us, the way you've always provided for us, how you've protected us from harm and how you have a glorious future in store for us. And thank you for the redemption that we have in Christ. Thank you for the fellowship that we have with Jesus and the saints. And thank you for blessing us with this place and ability to gather in your name. And we pray you'd be honored and glorified as we read your word, as we celebrate your goodness and remember your love. May it be demonstrated in our lives for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Are there people that you admire but you've never met personally? I can say, for me, yes. There's a lot of people that I found very inspirational that I've read their writings or or heard of things they did, their exploits, who passed away long before I was born. And if you ever had the opportunity to meet a hero of yours or to shake their hand, you know that posing for a a picture or shaking their hand isn't, it doesn't constitute a relationship. That if they're a celebrity, if they're famous or well-known for the things they've done, you realize that that's actually a hindrance to us having a friendship, and it's not something you really expect. But amazingly, miraculously, that's not true concerning God. Like Jesus has come, and he has made himself available to us, not just for a meet and greet, but in real life, we can meet him and know him. And uh, we have real friendship and fellowship with God because God calls the followers of Jesus his friends. And that's so awesome to be accepted by God as a friend, not just a fan, not just you know, someone he knows, but someone who can know him. And we have that blessing. Um, to draw near to God. And at times, distance does separate us from those we love. But we can always draw near to God. He will draw near to us. So we're in Luke 22. The, the context is Jesus has come to Jerusalem to observe the Passover. And that was one of the three major Jewish pilgrimage feasts observed by the Jews. Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem on the, on the back of a donkey, and his disciples shouted to fulfill Scripture, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were celebrating, and uh, much to the dismay of the religious rulers. And days passed as he taught in the temple, and people were very keen to hear him. They had heard of the things he had done with raising Lazarus from the dead, who had been dead for four days. And many believed on him when they saw Lazarus alive. And they tried to set traps for Jesus. They're like, all right, Jesus come to our turf in Jerusalem. Let's entrap him. Let's find a way to accuse him. And every pit they dug for him, they fell into themselves. And 
this was a special Passover for Jesus, one he'd been looking forward to because he knew it would be his last. It would be the last time he would have fellowship with his disciples before he went to Calvary, which was his hour. That was the purpose for which he was sent, to save sinners by dying on Calvary as the Lamb of God. And he would accomplish for sinners what we could not earn ourselves, atonement, forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. So Luke 22, starting in verse 1. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. For those unfamiliar, the Passover feast, it, or the Passover, it began the Feast of Unleavened Bread. According to the Hebrew calendar, Passover was always held on 14 Nisan. And uh, I looked it up next year. Passover is on uh, 27 March 2021. So it had been in the springtime that this was happening, not, uh, not around December. And uh, the historical basis for the Passover, we see it in Exodus chapter 12. The Hebrews were in bondage as slaves in Egypt, and God commanded, commanded each household on the 10th of that month to select a lamb or a goat from the flock, and then on the 14th they were to slaughter it, roast it, and eat it in readiness to depart. And he said they needed to take hyssop and and take the blood of the sacrifice and strike it on the doorposts and on the lintel of their house. So when God passed over, the firstborn would be spared. And they were to roast it, eat bitter herbs with it, and unleavened bread ready to leave. It says this in Exodus 12, 11 through 14. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Now we see this is what God said he would do. Uh, the idea of an angel of death that I've heard some say, it's, it's not biblical. We see that concept in the Talmud and in Jewish folklore, but not in the Torah. So the God who judged, the God who would destroy uh, the disobedient and unbelieving, he delights to save those who will obey him and trust him. So God passed through Egypt and he saved the firstborn of all who placed the blood of the lamb on the doorposts as directed. According to verse 14, Passover was a memorial of God saving his people from that plague. And then he led them out of Egypt. One aspect of the Passover that's not mentioned in these verses was the removal of all leaven from their houses. So they were to go through and remove all leaven or yeast containing items. And they were only, during those seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they could only eat unleavened bread. And it was a sign that their kids would ask, well, why do we just eat unleavened bread? And they would point back to God's deliverance and his salvation. And over the years, a more formal service for Passover, I'll say a more, uh, 
I guess, common way of observation of the Passover is developed with prayers and the four questions and recitation of psalms and the ceremonial burning of the leaven that was found. It's like you remove all the leaven from your house, but then there's some leaven that you burn to uh, you let the kids find it. It's kind of like it keeps everyone interested uh, from what I've read. I'm no expert on it, but um, I know it's one of the most high-profile feasts in the Jewish calendar, and so Jerusalem was swelled beyond capacity. The chief priests and scribes, they were trying to undermine Jesus, but failed at every turn. And these interactions, it's like whenever Jesus trumped them, they, he gained honor and fame amongst the people. And so they're like, the only way we can be rid of Jesus is to kill him. We can't undermine him. We can't outwit him. We can't intimidate him. The only way is to kill him. But they wanted to do so away from public scrutiny. And he was rarely without a host of disciples and faithful followers and an audience who was listening to him and glad to hear him, thinking he was the Messiah. Continuing in verse 3. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains, how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Judas Iscariot, he's really a central figure uh, of this passage that we'll be reading. He was one of the 12 apostles. He was highly respected amongst the people. The Gospel of John reveals that he was the one responsible for carrying the money that they received from donations that was for Jesus and his disciples' expenses. There was one case where he... uh, He questioned Jesus after he was anointed. Jesus had been anointed by a woman uh, with some very expensive perfume. And this is what he said in John 12, 4 through 6. Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. We learn that Judas was not an upright and honest man before Satan entered him. Like the door had been opened to Satan's influence before this happened uh, in the upper room, as we'll see. And Jesus mentioned this six chapters before in John. John 6, verse 70, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Jesus singled him out. He knew his heart. He knew that under the facade of piety and godliness, he was a thief. He was a betrayer. He was not a loyal disciple at all. And there's no justification to paint Judas as a helpless victim or that he really had good intentions in betraying Jesus to the chief priests and scribes. He chose to make himself a tool of Satan. He sought an opportunity to betray him for personal gain. And Jesus pronounced woe upon him for his own wickedness. It says he went his own way. It wasn't like, well, Satan entered him. He really can't be held responsible for what he did. No, he was a voluntary, willing tool of the enemy and sought to betray him for 30 pieces of silver Interestingly, that was the price in the law of Moses for a master whose servant had been killed. 
in Exodus 20, verse 32. Continuing in verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat. So they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room. There make ready. So they went and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. Jesus sent Peter and John to prepare the Passover for him and the other apostles. And they said, well, where? Jesus, at this time, he had been camping out on the Mount of Olives during the night. They weren't staying in the city, but he says, when you go into the city, you'll meet a man, you'll be met by a man carrying a pitcher. Follow him, go into that house, address the master of the house, and say, where is the guest room? For So the master's asking, Jesus is asking, where is the room where I can meet and celebrate the Passover with my disciples? Shortly before this, Jesus, remember, he sent two disciples to get that colt before he rode in. And they said, why are you loosening the colt? He just says, just say the master has need of it, and they'll let you. And they went, they followed the man with the pitcher. They spoke to the master of the house, and he's like, here's the furnished large room for you guys to observe the Passover. And it was just as Jesus said to them. And I love that this is totally consistent with the life of Jesus, that there was not one time he didn't say the wrong thing, where Jesus said it would be a certain way and it wasn't that way, or he called someone by the wrong name. Has anyone ever done that? Or was it just a mistake? You forgot someone's name. He never forgot someone's name, and he never said the wrong thing. He never just, um, you know, we can exaggerate he, he was always spot on. If he said something, it was correct. It was true. He never went back on a promise. He never had to apologize because he had misspoke. Think about when he met the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well. He had never met her before, but he says, oh, it's true that you say you have no husband because you've had five husbands till now, and the one you're living with isn't your husband. She's like, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. How could you know that about me? When Jesus was in Capernaum, men came to collect the temple tax. And he said, they said, Don't, doesn't your master pay the temple tax? And uh, he said, oh, of course, and came to Jesus. How do we pay this? He says, go out. He says in Matthew 17, 27, go to the sea, cast in a hook, take the fish that comes up first, and when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. As a fisherman, I'm thinking Peter had pretty much seen it all. But this was next level. Doesn't even tell him where to fish. Like, we know where you fish is important. The bait you use is important. Apparently, that's not important at all. He says, just cast in a hook, and the first fish you pull in, look in its mouth, there will be a piece of money. Use that to pay the temple tax for me and you. And guess what? It happened just as Jesus said. Crazy, right? Jesus was always right without fail. And do you know someone who seems to be always right? Does that person irritate you by any chance? They're <laughs> like, oh, I, w- I just want them to be like me and be wrong once. <laughs> but they're just not. <laughs> um, but what delight we can have in our Savior because he is always right. It always is as he says. We can count on him. 
And so we can delight in glory. And yeah, I get things wrong. I forget people's names and I say the wrong thing. And, they, and people are laughing and you, you think, why are you laughing? Oh, because I said the wrong thing. But Jesus, that didn't happen. It always happened as he said. He said to, to Martha, your brother Lazarus will rise again. They went out to the tomb and they rolled the, t- the stone away and the smell of death hit their nostrils. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And he walked out of the tomb with his grave clothes on. It's like the things Jesus says we can count on. And what opportunities are afforded us to see his provision and care when we rise up and do what he says? If he says, follow the person that you meet with a pitcher and say this to the master, you'll find that the upper room is given to you. And that's what happened, just as Jesus said. Verse 14, when the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. The preparations complete. Jesus and the 12 apostles, they gathered to eat the Passover. Jesus says, I have been fervently looking forward to eating this meal with you because the Passover that was initiated in Egypt, it was pointing to Jesus who is our Passover. It was a shadow of what Jesus is the substance. The Passover, it was a time of remembrance. It was a time to remember how God had delivered the children of Israel, and the salvation God had wrought, how he saved them from bondage and slavery in Egypt. And Jesus adapted this feast, which had always been one of remembrance, looking back to that deliverance in the past, with thanksgiving now looking ahead to what Jesus would accomplish. And that must have been a shocking switch for people who had always celebrated the Passover one way. And now Jesus is inserting himself into the picture and saying, yes, remember what God has done, but rejoice in what God is going to do, the salvation he's going to bring for you. He was heading to Calvary as the Lamb of God without blemish. So all who partake by him, partake with him in faith will be atoned for, our sins will be forgiven, set free from the bondage of sin and death, And Jesus, before he left earth, he's also talking about when he's going to return, when he's going to establish his kingdom. He's looking forward to that. He says, I'm not going to eat or drink of this until it is fulfilled. So he's looking beyond the cross to the life where we get to have with him and he will establish his throne on earth. Now, as a Gentile, I am no expert on the Passover or know precisely the way it was celebrated 2,000 years ago. I'm not going to elaborate on many opinions about what the different elements stand for. There's a lot of information online. I encourage you guys to look into it if that interests you. But wine was a prominent part of the meal. Uh, To this day, I think it's four cups of wine that are drunk uh, throughout the meal. And there are 15 steps of a traditional Passover cedar. The Haggadah is the Jewish text, which is a guide and liturgy for people who observe the Passover. So they have a booklet that they'll read through and it has readings, it has explanations, and it gives you information. 
We customarily pray before a meal, but it's a Jewish tradition to give grace after the meal. And I found this great thing uh, on reformjudaism.org. It has an interesting fact about the 13th step. It says, grace after meals, the third cup of wine is poured and the Berkath Hamazon is recited. This is similar to the grace that would be recited on any Sabbath, but with a special insertion for Passover. At the end, a blessing is said over the third cup of wine and it is drunk. The fourth cup is poured, including a cup set aside for the prophet Elijah, who is supposed to herald the Messiah and is supposed to come on Pesach to do so. The door is then open to invite Elijah into our homes. The cup of Elijah symbolizes the hope for a redemptive future. I was like, wow, that is amazing. Jesus identified Elijah as being John the Baptist, the Elijah the the prophet spoke of, because John came in the spirit of Elijah. He's the forerunner who pointed to Jesus Christ being the Lamb of God through whom alone redemption comes. We find this in Matthew 17, verse 11. Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first, coming before the Messiah, and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Some of the apostles that followed Jesus, they first followed John. And John pointed to Jesus as the one they should follow. And so they stopped following John the Baptist, having received his baptism of repentance, and chose to follow Christ, the one that he pointed to. John said of Jesus Jesus in John 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease. And if you're willing to open the door to Elijah to enter your home for the hope of a redemptive future, open your heart to Jesus. He's the one that John pointed to, and he's the one who gives us redemption. He is our redeemer and savior. It's like all the pieces are there of recognizing Jesus as our Messiah and King. Luke 22, 19, and he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. He takes bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it. Similarly to when he did so to provide food miraculously for the thousands. And he did something remarkable. He shifted the view from Egypt and what the unleavened bread that they ate in haste to his body. He says, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Not just in remembrance of the salvation that had been brought for the Jews years before, but the salvation Jesus would bring to them by his sacrifice. And it must have been so jarring for him to say, this is my body. This is my blood shed for you. So he's using this historical event now to point towards his sacrifice and what he would do. There's no mention of a lamb at this Passover meal. I'm assuming they had one. But I do know that Jesus is the substance of what that lamb was a shadow. It was pointing to a sacrifice, not just to save the the firstborn, but of anyone who turns to him in faith and trusts him. 
God sent his only begotten son so that we could be free, we could be forgiven, we could have life instead of death. Could you turn to John chapter 6, starting in verse 47, where Jesus refers to himself as the bread of life. His broken body is received through faith. And it's something we must take personally, right? Because he says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. And we appropriate that, we receive that uh, through faith. John 6, verse 47, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. So he shifts the view from looking back to looking ahead to what he will accomplish, the salvation he would bring. And I think it's fitting that it's not mentioned that he drank of the cup or ate of the bread before he passed it. It's like it was unnecessary for him to partake of it because it was symbolizing him, like he's the real thing, and it's pointing to him. When we receive communion together, I receive communion along with you because I need forgiveness and salvation from Jesus just as much as everyone else, but Jesus is the Lamb of God. Uh, There's no need for him to partake of it, and uh, he didn't need to be forgiven. That being said, he didn't need to submit to the ordinance of baptism either, right? A baptism of repentance. But he did so to fulfill all righteousness, to provide us an example that we should follow. So it doesn't, it's not a problem if Jesus partook of it because he had fellowship and friendship with him. Oneness, that was one thing that eating in that culture, if you ate and drank with someone, it's like we are becoming one with each other. We're eating the same, from the same loaf of bread. We're drinking from the same cup. And to make a loaf of bread, you need thousands of pieces of grain ground up, going through this process, being cooked. Same thing with wine. You have a lot of, a lot of grapes they're all crushed, and they're all becoming one and ferment together. And so it's, it's really a picture of coming together. It's unity. And we have that in the body of Christ because of what Jesus has done. He has redeemed us and made us part of his own body. So we're not a whole bunch of individuals that are cobbled together, but we are one in Christ. And so we have that fellowship with him and one another. So he gave the bread. He gave the cup. He initiated an agreement. So he did more than remember. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He's saying, I'm establishing a new covenant that trumps that of a covenant written on tablets of stone, but it will provide atonement for all who trust in me. So they they received this by faith. They ate of the bread. They drank of the cup. By faith, they would receive forgiveness and salvation And this is for you. So he's telling them, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. But he's saying to you as well, this is my body broken for you. My blood shed for you. We have a glorious redemptive future through Jesus. 
One more point I would like to make. At the end of the Passover, there would be a full Hallel, which consists of reading Psalms 113 to 118. Now, I, I definitely uh, kind of bounced the idea around of reading through all of them because they are really good and so great. So if you want homework, read those Psalms. But Psalm 118 especially, the last half of it is just bursting with mentions of Jesus and things that he fulfilled. And, and that passage where it says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's there. So at the end of every Passover, they had been giving this praise. And, uh, and I, I read this explanation of why these are so important to the Jews during Passover. And this is what the Orthodox Union had to say. It says, these chapters are expressions of joy and faith in God and in gratitude for salvation from our enemies. They were incorporated into the book of Psalms by King David. They were singled out for inclusion in Hallel because they contain the following fundamental themes of the faith of Judaism. The Exodus, the giving of the Torah by God at Sinai, the future resurrection of the dead, and the coming of the Messiah. And I was like, wow. Isn't that awesome? It is so awesome that we too celebrate what God has done. That he has given us his word. That he has saved us. That Jesus, he died, but he, he rose from the dead. And so there's a, re a resurrection awaiting us as well. Not to uh, eternal wrath and damnation, but to heaven and, and glory with God forever. So I encourage you guys to read, the, read those Hallel Psalms. The gospel is there, brimming with gospel truth. Luke 22, verse 21. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Then they began to question amongst them, among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. God's plan, his determination, his purpose was to send Jesus to be the savior of the world. Jesus embraced this. He's like, I am committed fully to doing what God the Father has told me. And because it says, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. So God determined, this is the way that I'm going to bring salvation to the world is by sending my only begotten son to die for the sins of the world. But Judas, it was not determined that he would betray Christ. God knew that he would betray him, but he was not forced into doing so. It was of his own free will that he chose to betray Christ. He was never an unwilling victim uh, that God would not hold personally accountable for what he did. And in the final judgment, Judas cannot say, he cannot justify himself by saying, the devil made me do it. Uh, though Satan entered him, we are all sinners. The only way a sinner can be justified is through faith in Jesus Christ. He's the one who justifies us and forgives us of our sins and provides the atonement we need. Mark 14, 21, it says it this way, uh, the Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. God has determined the soul that sins will surely die. God also determined to send Jesus to be a savior, to redeem sinners. It's, I find it so fascinating that this Passover meal is, has Judas kind of intertwined throughout the whole thing because he's the reason why Jesus came. 
to save sinners like him. Sinners who, who are going to destruction and who willingly give themselves to evil. That's why Jesus came. He loved him. He chose him. He's seeking to save him. And it's up to Judas if he is going to repent or continue on this course that he has chosen for himself, which is heading to destruction, to ruin. Like God determined to send a savior, a redeemer, a deliverer. Now, the 12 men in Jesus' presence were shocked. Well, 11 of them were shocked. One of them knew what was going on. But the revelation, one of us, someone who's sitting at this table is going to betray Jesus. So you've kind of been rocked by how there's been this shift in the Passover meal. But now, one of us is going to betray him, and they start asking, well, is it, is it you? Is it, I'm not going to betray him. Of course not. Amongst themselves, they sought the answer in vain, but in response to a direct question, Jesus did point it out in John 13, 26. Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, then he went out immediately, and it was night. Everyone's wondering who the betrayer is, even after Jesus identifies him. It's likely he was sitting very close to Jesus because it was customary that you would take some bread and you would, you would feed the people on your... You kind of distribute it, hand it to the right and the left. So he fed Judas. And, and Judas had rapport with Jesus amongst the disciples because they said, oh yeah, they were talking. They've got a plan. He knows what Jesus means. And they assumed he was doing something good, but he wasn't. It's really... Troubling to me that Judas chose hypocrisy over repentance. He chose Satan over a savior. He could have spilt his guts then and there. He could have confessed, like, yeah, guys, I've totally blown it. I've, I've chosen to sell, sell out Jesus for, for 30 shekels of silver and could have asked for forgiveness, but he kept it to himself. He kept up appearance of a righteous man and sought to betray Jesus And he plunged into the darkness of night. And it's suggestive of the outer darkness that he was hurling towards. That he chose for himself. So please turn to 1 Corinthians 5 verse 6. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 6. And it's so important that we don't read a passage like this and think someone else could be Judas a Judas, but we take that personally, that that's really us. That's the thing that he needed to do was to repent. That's the need that I have in my life, to repent of sin. And that's something that we desperately need in the church, always, because we can keep up appearances, but God knows the heart. And he desires for us to be saved and delivered, to have redemptive purposes fulfilled in our lives, Paul had written a letter to the church in Corinth to address the divisions, the uh, issues in the church, 
And one of them in particular was uh, a man who had, who, he openly had a sexual relationship with his father's wife. And Paul said, I've heard of what's going on, and I'm judging righteously to say he needs to repent or he needs to go out of the congregation so that his soul will be saved. Paul wrote to the church in 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8, he says, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What did it profit for them to glorify God for His love and grace if they were actively promoting and supporting sin in the church? Like, what good did it do to praise Jesus for providing atonement for sin when they persisted in it? He says, get rid of the old leaven, that malice, that wickedness that remains. Purge it because you have been made unleavened. It's contrary to the new nature that God's given you. It's kind of like we can celebrate that soap exists, but what good is it if we don't wash our hands? It profits nothing. And he uses leaven here as an analogy for sin, that he says, just as leaven will spread throughout the dough, so sin, it will spread not just through you, but through the whole body. He says, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. A proper Passover meal, it required unleavened bread. Like that would be off, that would just be unheard of, that you could possibly celebrate Passover with leavened bread, though they ate leavened bread all the time. But during Passover, that was a special time where they were to uh, observe it in a particular way. And so those who follow Christ, we ought to put away all sin from our lives. Instead of malice and wickedness, we should embrace sincerity and truth. Now the disciples, they were shocked when Jesus said one of them would betray him. What, what would be your reaction if I told you that someone here is going to do something that you just think is awful. Like someone is going to go home today and fornicate with pornography. Or if I said, tonight, one of you, someone watching this message, someone listening to it, is going to become intoxicated and become drunk. And you go, like, is it me? Is it you? Who is it? And what if I told you someone who is here today will verbally and physically ab abuse spouse and children? And we'd be shocked that that could possibly be. But the disciples, they didn't see it. They didn't know who it was. And the one who wasn't curious didn't forsake his sin. We would likely be very curious, like the disciples who wondered who would betray Jesus and if I'm not curious, and there's something that the Lord would have me deal with, something to confess. You know, you who glory in the forgiveness and salvation of Christ, what good is it to us if we don't confess it, if we don't repent of it right now? What does it profit? Jesus didn't expose Judas to shame him, to embarrass him. He came to save him. He, he came to redeem him. He came to warn him of what was facing him, and we need to be warned of what's facing us if we depart 
from the grace and goodness of God. Jesus is our Passover. He sacrificed for us. His body broken for me, for you. His blood shed for me, for you. Praise the Lord, we can be forgiven, that we can be redeemed, that we can be delivered from death because that's what we deserve. Not one of us has to depart into darkness. Not one of us has to walk away from Jesus. We can draw near to him in faith, knowing that he loves us, knowing that he's given his all to redeem and save us. Of all the people I admire, Jesus tops them all because he's more than the man. He's my God. He's my Savior. He's the one who's demonstrated God's love for me by dying on Calvary, by rising from the dead, by redeeming this corrupt heart and giving me a heart of flesh, taking away the heart of stone. And he's given this opportunity of new life to all people, Jew, Gentile, slave, and free. Praise God that he died for us so we can live with him forever. Let's rejoice in Jesus, our Passover, sacrificed for us. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are glorious and good, that you have sent Jesus to be our Savior, that we are no better than Judas or Barabbas or all of the, I guess, the undesirable folks in the Scripture that it serve as a warning to us lest we depart from the living God. And I pray, Lord, that we would be those who, who confess our sins to you, who repent, and that we would draw near to you so you might draw near to us. We thank you, Lord, that you are good. You are a redeemer and a deliverer, a savior, and all that come to you in faith, you will receive. Thank you, Lord, that you're not a God afar off. You're not distracted. You're not forgetful. You know our names. You know the things you've purposed for each of us to fulfill in your kingdom. And I pray, Lord, we would embrace you. Our love for you would grow. Our faith would expand. Our usefulness and fruitfulness would continue. And that you would uh, just shine your light in our hearts, Lord. Show us if there be any wicked way in us and lead us in the righteous way. Thank you, Lord, for the grace you give us for the forgiveness, and that you say you will forgive our sins no more, that you'll put them as far from us as the east is from the west, that we don't have to be afraid of your judgment anymore, just as the children of Israel, as they, were, as they observed the first Passover and the blood on the posts and the lintel, you saw that and you passed over. Lord, with the blood of Jesus uh, washing us clean, we are free, we are yours, bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus. Praise you, Father. Glory, glory to your name. You are holy and good. We worship you and love you in Jesus' name. Amen.